So I wanted to let you guys know if you, I have the leftover ones from the previous classes up here. Let me see if I have them all. Two, three, four. If anybody wants any of the handouts from before, I kept a couple around in case somebody wanted to see what they look like and stuff, the outlines. And today we are on five. Church governance, living as a church. God's authority, fostering unity. Let's begin with prayer. God, I pray that you would help us to understand how, <clears throat> excuse me, how you want um, your church to be organized for your own glory, for unity in the body. God, we thank you for this morning time that we have, the beautiful sunshine, the chance to gather together. I pray, Lord, that you would teach us from your word, that you would uh, unify your church for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning, as I said, we're talking about church governance, godly authority fostering unity, and um, basically what we're talking about is decision-making in the church, and how could that lead to unity? Now, I always recognize whenever we're talking about church membership, when I first meet somebody and talk about where people's different backgrounds come from, that everybody has, just like everybody has a different idea of, of how a church should look and feel and that kind of thing and, and, um, and all that. Also, a lot of people come from a different kind of backgrounds of where uh, a church, how it's structured. A lot of us are familiar with the Catholic Church and how there's more of a, a what I call you know top-down strategy where you have the Pope and you have the cardinals and you have the bishops and you have the priest and uh, they're the ones who carry out all of the functions of the church and the people that come pretty much are kind of like consumers for lack of a better word where they come in and the church is going to happen whether they're in there or not and you kind of like every service you have everything you need you have to pay for to, to be a part of the church. And uh, all the decisions are from the top down. And then somebody told me about um, the, uh, you know, some people told me about the Moses model of leadership where it's like one person and then everybody is like, he's like the king of the church. And everybody else helps, you know, in some ways or assist, you know, he has his assistants. And then he, it's kind of still like a top down strategy. The top is not in um, an office in the state capital somewhere or even overseas somewhere but the offices in the church where there's just one main leader here at the church and then there's assistants and there's other people that fall, fall in line I guess you'd say after that and church governance is one of those things that uh, also but I, I like to think about when it comes to what's what's the congregational's role in decision making and it's not something how a church is governed is not exactly something that a lot of people um you know, wake up in the middle of the night worried about, right? I don't think any of you guys woke up stressed this week about, okay, how should the church be governed? But it's important. It's an important topic, and especially it's an important topic for unity and how we operate together as a church. It's um, it's one of those things where it kind of just happens unless you're paying attention. And when you're not, when things don't work right, then there's a problem, right? right? Like, so it's like the pistons in your car. You don't really think about how they operate. They just operate, but when one breaks then the car doesn't run. And then whenever there's an issue, regardless of how the church is structured, whenever there's an issue, um, there's, there's problems, right? And the church doesn't operate well. And church governance is basically the system by which decisions are made in the church. That's basically a simple definition of church governance, where the authority resides in the church. And um, they're, they're, no matter what, like I said, a, an organization, I said this earlier in the class, there's always structural, um, there's always 
organization of some kind. You know, there's always some way that every organization is structured. The church is, is no different. And authority, and the question of authority, is also something that that is either natural, it's either not thought about, or it's really it's really put into place and it's really uh, held on to strongly. The uh, church governance is important because I said earlier this is uh, how God, how we want to operate the church the way God intends the church to operate, and the way God is glorified most is trying to follow His word and the structure of the church. And proper authority should protect and prosper the unity of a church. And uh, so this morning I want to look at the different scriptural officers, offices that the church, uh, that the, the Bible talks about and the importance of those things and how those things play out, like what we see in the Bible, um, what the ideal way is, and maybe even think about a little bit about how it operates here in our church and how we want to, want to see it continue to operate and even um, go forward. Because, well, we'll get to it in a minute, but you guys know, like, our church, um, we talk about the organization and the church membership classes, and the fact of the matter is, is this church is a very new church. Our church has only been around. Somebody asked me yesterday at the party, how long have you guys been here? I get that question a lot sometimes. And How long have you all been here? And I said, I think four years we've been in this space, and that's just kind of how I answer the question. Um, but it's like, and then it's funny because he was like, oh, he was kind of like surprised. I guess that was a short amount of time, but it really is a pretty brief amount of time. Considering I got an email this week from somebody that asked about a marriage certificate in like the 1920s, and uh, they were looking for public records. And I wrote back and I said, our church was not around in the 1920s. I was not around, my parents were not around in the 1920s, but the average life cycle of a church is about the same average lifespan of a human being. It's about 80 years is about the average life cycle of a church. And every church has its life cycles, and I would say, as far as our church, especially if you're comparing it to a human being, we're kind of still in the infant, now toddler stage, right? We're a pretty relatively new church compared to churches that have been around for 125 years or whatever. And um, so when our church started, it was myself, my wife, and a group of people, and God in his grace has seen to grow the church, have the office of elder other than just me, until last year, when about a year and a few months ago, when the congregation installed Tom and, and Frank as our first elders of the church. But um, when it's just, um, you know, and before that, I can tell you how I prayed too, was I believed in having spiritual oversight and, uh, and supervision. I didn't want to just be, um, you know, when I moved here, I, I left another church. So I asked some elders from that other church to kind of like be my elders and to pray for our church and to check up on me and that sort of thing. They didn't have any authority except just like the idea of somebody that was in a different state. You know what I mean? Like they weren't going to make um, decisions as far as like membership or that sort of thing. And then when it came to budgets and when the church started, I would I was uh, submitting my budget to uh, an organization office in Fort Wayne called Fellowship of Evangelical Churches, and they held all the money and they. Like, uh, I was employed by them, and it wasn't even until last year, I think it was at this time, when, wasn't it last January, was the first time that we were no longer, like, I was no longer employed by FEC Ministries. I was employed by River City Church. There's a big change in the life of the church. So when you look at it like that, like, you could say that our church is only, like, one year old because now we're self-sustaining to a greater degree than we've ever been in the past. And it took um, 
so it, it kind of was like this game of like, okay, what do we need to have as far as biblical church offices, and then what does that look like, and and um, and uh, how does like congregational members, how do they, you know, what's their role, and what's the role of FEC, you know, when it comes to oversight, what was the role of, um, the, you know, my role, and all of that stuff was like just difficult to navigate, you know, and as we started, but I always wanted to be saying, okay, what does like the Bible say about what it should look like when you're structuring a church? Uh, so that's kind of like a history of where we got to where we got to and uh, where we're going forward. I even think, like I've told you guys before, um, I even, um, especially, yeah, this is a good time to talk about, well, we're going to talk about church membership as we go along. And like I said a couple classes ago, this, in a sense, is like an extended version of church membership class. And I, I, um, you know, some of our church membership classes were like one session. Some of them were like four or five sessions, six sessions one time. And this is kind of like a, an extended 13-week explanation of how our church functions and, and how the Bible talks about um, we should have life together as a church. And, and I actually, there's a church uh, planter who everybody else would always talk about like when you're starting a church like who's coming how many are coming and and uh and then i got involved with acts 29 and and their process they said you cannot be recognized as an, a, a member church until you have 40 adult members that are involved that are giving that are serving and um and i was always hung up on that i was always like well that's really difficult and, and there's actually another guy who was in the same boat that i was and he had more people, like twice as many people as we had, but he only had like two actual members. And um, he too at the same time was like, well, we have a pretty high bar for membership. So I don't, like he was in the same position I was when we were talking to the X29 group saying like, well, I don't know if we'll ever have 40 adult members. And then they, I think he asked and they just switched and said, well, if you have 40 people coming. So they just changed the definition and said, well, now you can be accepted because you have 40 people coming. And I kind of just lost touch with uh, that organization because I was like, well, let's see, we have 28 members now, so we're still not at the 40-member threshold. So according to some organizations, we're, no, we're not even a, an operating church yet. You know, we're not a real church in their eyes because we're not accepted as a member church. And so again, that caused a crisis of faith in my mind. Is like, okay, what is a church and how does this look like? And uh, how do you bring in members and what do you expect of members and what kind of decisions do members make and what kind of decisions do I make and what kind of decisions does like X29 make or FEC make and those were all things that I wrestled with for a long long time and I've been helped through a lot of books that I've read that I didn't think that, that all those things were all that important at the beginning of a new church but more and more the longer I've been in church ministry the more I see that they're really they really are important and uh, I actually, there was a church planter who said, uh, you'd always ask them, when did your church start? That's a question a lot of pastors, the church planters get asked all the time, when did you guys start? Like I said, somebody asked me yesterday, how long have you been here? And they say, when do you start? And uh, most people would say, well, we started, you know, on this date. And uh, like, this was our launch date. And one training I went through, they always talked about how you have a birthday party for your church every year on that date and you celebrate that launch date as the birth of your church. And actually a lot of church planting training will tell you that. 
And I always say, well, you know, we were here, I think it was June 1st, four years ago, maybe five years, I have to do the math. And so if we're going to have a celebration or a birthday, it's June 1st or whatever. But uh, another church planter, he told me, if you ask him, when did you launch? He'll say, we covenanted together on June 1st of 2018. And I told him once, I said, I noticed that because he was asked that three times. And he, he never responded, when did you start? When did you launch? He'd say, well, our church covenanted together on this date. And I said, well, you always answer it, not what they're asking. And he said, well, he didn't really believe in the whole launching model. He believes like a group of people, they covenanted together in a membership covenant. And that was when the church, in his mind, that was when they became a church, was when they, the members covenanted together to be a church. And I really like that thinking and that way of thinking about um, beginning a new church and, and starting out. And when are we now a part of this? Like the guy who used our building on Wednesday who's starting a church in Greenfield. And uh, they had a small group of people. And I don't know how he's doing it. I know he's, it's, um, it's been a, a couple years where he's gathering people together and that sort of thing from another church and he's going to like, uh, but right now they were, they were probably still call themselves members of this other church with the process of getting, you know, starting a new church in Greenfield. So there's a lot of different ways to look at starting a church. There's a lot of different ways of looking at um, church governance and church, um, and church structures and church leadership, I guess you could say. There's a lot of different ways you can look at um, how that goes, how that plays here. And the important thing is, is um, that these these offices that the church talks about—elders, deacons, and church members—I uh, actually think, and I again, th- this is I've grown in my understanding of this. It's not like pastor, assistant pastors, and then everybody else, but it's more like elders and deacons and um, church members. And I, I think having the office of of those three offices. Those are all scriptural. Those are all either either outlined or just assumed from the text. Of uh, this is, this is how a church is structured. So I want to look at the benefits of the, these scriptural offices, beginning with the elders and how the Bible talks about this for the purpose of unity. I mean, this is this is why it's important here. Uh, let's begin with that term, elder. The office of elder is used interchangeably in the Bible with the office of overseer or bishop or pastor. And that's, um, we see that in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20, Acts chapter 17, Acts chapter uh, 37. And in the book of Acts, uh, chapter 20, we're going to be looking up some scriptures here. Number one, oh, and I'll tell you this, that um, we have been, um, the elders have been going through uh, a study about church eldership and what's, what does the Bible say about church eldership. And I, I think it's important to be um, humble when you're learning about it and to be, you know, gracious when it comes to elders. Like, so in my last church, they was organized by like a leadership team. And before I got there, they were switching over to church eldership. And it, they went through some growing pains with that change to church eldership. And a lot of people in the church still didn't really understand the role of the elders. And even after I'd been there for a couple years, it wasn't even for a couple years whenever the um, um, pastor was asked by the elders to do some teaching on church eldership. And so... 
we started going through this book, Biblical Eldership, and then one time, the pastor just taught a lot about eldership, and whenever he was done, after like a half an hour, it was funny, one of the elders said, this was really good, we've never had any teaching on eldership. And that was with a team of elders who had been there for a few years. He said, we've never really fully understood, like, church eldership, and so this, was, this has been very helpful for us. And one of the elders stepped off the elder team and then said to me later, I, he started doing more like counseling and meeting with people and that sort of thing and said, I've been doing more elder work since I've been off the elder team than I was on the elder team. And then I said, well, then there's something's wrong. Like you can't go away from being on the elder team to saying I'm, now I'm doing elderly, elder work. Either you don't know what elder work is or you weren't doing it when you're on the elder team. Does that make sense? So um, the church was trying to move in the right direction. I should, uh, this is the point I'm making. The church was trying to move in the right direction, but still there was an idea of um, either, you know, the pastor was the king of the church or the elders were like um, his assistants or the elders were like this board of directors. And that's not what the church was trying to do. That's not what they were trying to teach. But you, whenever, especially a church that's been around for any length of time or when you have people coming from all kinds of walks of life, it's kind of hard to, to get everybody aligned on the same page, it's hard to turn that ship around. And it, it took some time. It took some teaching. It took a lot of prayer. And they, you know, by God's grace, when I was there, we were growing in that, that direction. And I, uh, I love the fact that there are a lot of churches now that are saying, okay, what does the Bible say? Like, why is it important? And why are we, why are we going in this direction of, of eldership from a biblical point of view? And I do think it's, uh, it's important to look at the definitions and why it's important in Scripture here. Because, uh, like I said, elder, bishop, overseer, pastor, those words tend to be used interchangeably in the book of Acts. Elders are primarily charged with the spiritual oversight of the church. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul tells the Ephesian elders, pay careful attention to yourself and to all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his blood. We see in Acts chapter 6 that the elders are told to uh, devote themselves to prayer and ministry of the word. And they are the primarily the, the principal governing body of the church. 1 Timothy 5.7 says that elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor. And so... Elders have that role, that primary role of being that under-shepherd, that shepherd of God's flock, but more of an under-shepherd because Jesus is the shepherd of the flock. And their goal is to have spiritual oversight and care of the church. So with that background in mind, let me suggest four ways that eldership promotes unity. First of all, it's... Um, the elder model of leadership places authority in those most qualified to exercise it. Again, if you're looking at a board of directors, and I remember I was told this uh, in one of the trainings that I went to, they said like your uh, governing board, I guess they were operating more in the church like a board of directors. He said, you want to get the people with like the most business experience. Like you want to get the people that have, that are used to handling budgets because like when your church grows, you don't want somebody to freak out when there's like an extra zero at the end of your budget or something like that. Like make sure that the person like is used to like doing like HR stuff and, and budgeting stuff and that sort of stuff. In other words, you need to pick the people that are, have the most business acumen to be on your board. 
And that's not what the book of Acts talks about. It talks about those who are most qualified to lead the church in a, in a spiritual sense. The qualifications are set forth in, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Titus chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, um, 1 Timothy 5, 17, Hebrews 13, uh, 17. Those are some of the verses that talk about the, the qualifications that Paul lists here. And uh, this is important because this fosters unity because we recognize that there is a common standard that elders that elders should be living up to. And it's not who makes the most money or gives the most money or has the most influence in their community or in the business world, but it's the person who fits those qualifications for an elder, regardless of whether they're retired and regardless of um, you know, what they do for a living. Second, elder leadership places response, a special responsibility uh, for the spiritual health of the membership in the hands of those who have a special accountability to God. So in Hebrews 13, 17, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. And for me, that was one of those verses that, uh, that, that did keep me up awake, keep me awake at night, up at night, because, you know, I was concerned with, like, well, who am I supposed to give an account to if we don't have a clear line of who's a member and who's not a member? But this is actually not even written to leaders. It's written, well, it says that we have a responsibility but it says that you need to obey your leaders and submit to them because of what they're doing. And uh, God holds leaders responsible. Um, God holds uh, members, like it says here, responsible to obey. And Ephesians 4, 12 through 13 says it's the pastor's job to, to prepare the church for works of service so that we can all reach unity in the faith. So the goal of, a, of an elder is to prepare the church for works of service so that we can all reach unity in the faith. And thirdly, um, elder leadership promotes unity um, because this is God's requirement for, as I said, for uh, members to obey and humbly submit to authority. As it says in Hebrews 13, 17. So why does it promote unity whenever we're all doing the same thing? Well, when we're, like I said, when it comes to what humbly submitting to spiritual leaders, humbly submitting to the word. Submission makes us uh, less headstrong, more humble. It makes us uh, less defiant, more differential. It, it is, it's better whenever other people are um, a humble recognition of the authority that God puts in place. Uh, hierarchy within elders. Um, not... No, I mean, I think they're not necessarily. Mm -mm. But I think there's different roles and there's different, um, w the way the elder team works is like there's different uh, strengths and there's different abilities and there's different roles and there's different just natural things where like I might know, this happened actually in my last church when I uh, was with talking with one of the elders. I was kind of like, th you would na they would naturally defer to what the senior pastor said on a lot of issues because the senior pastor was waiting in that every single day where the guy I was talking to worked for GE. You know what I mean? So when it comes to like decision making, you know, I, yeah, I think when elders are making a decision, they're all on equal footing. And I think that the elder teams too should always have a consensus on decision making. So I don't think you ever come out and say, well, the elder team voted, um, you know, five to two on this issue and the other two, you know, 
they're wrong and, and does that make sense? Yeah, that's a that's a that's a good point. And um, I do introduce myself sometimes as Pastor Eric. Sometimes I just say Eric on emails. Um, and some I don't ever do this, but my last church, a lot of people call me Pastor Baldwin. And uh, I I never have introduced myself as Pastor Baldwin. I one of my friends who's actually he was like five years younger than me, a good friend of mine. He would always correct his kids if they ever called me Pastor Eric. He always said that was very rude. And Leah, too, where she grew up, she said, like, oh, you would never call him Pastor Tim. It was always Pastor Reed. That's what he said. I don't know. I think that's what his first name was. I don't even know because that's what they still call him, Pastor Reed. You know what I mean? You would never call him Pastor First Name. Um, but I, I think it's important, um, Pastor Elder or, yeah, Elder or Pastor. If Yeah, I think you're right. Um, Frank asked me, should he introduce himself as Pastor Frank? And I said, if you if you want, it's not wrong, right? If you want to call yourself Frank, you can call yourself Frank. Yeah, I don't put. Um, I I never like correct people or tell people like, because like it doesn't. Regardless of title, I think you're right. There is something to be said about what, how people address you and what they call you. But regardless of title, it's like who you are anyway. You know, because I have a friend who's, um, he's like never introduces himself as pastor, not even in the church. He doesn't say like, like he, and I, I just, I don't put a lot of stock in, in titles per se. You know what I mean? Some people do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't <clears throat> correct people when they call me Pastor Eric. Like if you were to call me Pastor Baldwin or Pastor Eric, I wouldn't say don't call me that. You know, I, I um, and the only time, only time when I would like rebuke somebody like that is if it was like a little kid or something. <laughs> and I would sometimes I do that. I heard uh, a long time ago I heard Todd Friel say that he never really cared about being called Mr. Friel until some said some snot-nosed kid was like, hey, Todd. I'm like, is Mr. Friel to you? <laughs> and you're right. You know what's funny talking about that, Mr. last name? Because in my last church, too, a lot of people would say that's Mr. You know, it was not Mr. Tom, but Mr. Longo to you, you know, to the kids. So that even like my friend who was younger than me, he was like 30-something, and he would still call like Mr. McDaniel. You know, he would call him Mr. last name because that's, he grew up, that, that was Mr. McDaniel. You don't call him Mr. Tim, you know? You don't call him Tim, you know, his name was Mr. McDaniel, and I actually got into that too on accident. I would start to call people older than me in the church Mr. by their last name, you know, and when I used to substitute teach, um, I, I saw this happen one time where I had a substitute teacher who thought he was cool and wanted to just go by his first name, and then everybody was disrespectful to him, and then from then on, he's like, okay, it's Mr. Baldwin, you know what I mean? Because I think even as uh, kids, sometimes we're like, oh, we want to be friendly, and you can call me Mr. Frank or whatever. And I'm like, no, it's Mr. Shumkitz to you, you know. What were you going to say, Ben? Yeah, there's always a tightrope to walk regarding that. As, and I asked Peter one time, do you be called Dr. Mitwitty, Dr. Peter, or do you introduce yourself as Peter? Because what do you call, like, 
Peter or Chris when they come in the door. You, nobody's ever called them Dr. Gibbs, right, when they come in. No, they are. Yeah, that counts. They're doctors. Um, <laughs> they're doctors. And, um, and he said, well, like, they wouldn't introduce themselves in the church as that, but in the office, if they go in to see a patient, that's how they would introduce themselves as Dr. whether Peter or Dr. Mitwitty, whenever they come into the room. And um, they're kind of the same way. Like, I've known of pastors who have said, um, I'm reverent. Um, and that's, that's a, a, um, my understanding when you get ordained or whatever, or like, it depends on your church structure. Like, there are some people that are reverend so-and-so and most reverend or whatever. And I get emails, I mean, I get mails sometimes with Reverend Baldwin on it, but I never introduce myself as reverend at all. I never put it on anything. If anything, I would say pastor instead of reverend. But there are people out in, not in the church setting, but that are, you know, out in the, uh, like that, that's how they introduce themselves. It's funny, a lot of people will call me that because they don't know my name, I think. Like, hey, Rev. Yeah, that's exactly why that's exactly why I do introduce myself as that. Yeah. Yeah. You don't get you a discount by doing that. <laughs> you actually do. Yeah, because people will want to talk then. Kind of like if you're a doctor, like they always get questions about my knee's been hurting me. Same way. Like if you're anywhere, like and if you don't introduce yourself as pastor, but then they find out you're pastor. I've actually had that happen where I'm at a banquet or a dinner or something and just talking normal, and then they find out I'm pastor. Like, oh, I didn't know you were pastor. And then they start. Then all of a sudden they're like, you know, this I've been thinking about this, you know, and, and I'm in this counseling situation. And I was like, if they hadn't have known about that, then they wouldn't have addressed me that's, that as that, you know. But as a Christian, I should be open to that kind of conversation anyway, right? Tom, Pastor Tom. That gets into why why is having um, elders that are on equal footing, why is how does that promote unity in the church? Well, for one, the decisions that are made are collective decisions rather than by a single elder making a decision and telling everybody else they have to fall in line. In fact, I had this, was talking with a, a fellow pastor recently where he was involved in a decision and it was with the church and how the church was going to operate, and it was very, very difficult. He said for the first time that he can remember in the life of the church, they were actually going to present something to the congregation and had, they had a split decision on the other team. And he was trying to mend it, and he was going to the two and saying, like, you guys have to submit to everybody else's decision. And he wanted to present a unified front, and they, they weren't. In fact, in my last church, I think there were six elders at one time, and there were decisions sometimes where one person said, like, I just don't feel comfortable in this. And we didn't do it. It wasn't a five-to-one, yays, have it, move forward. It was, like, okay, back to prayer, and we're not going to make, we're not going to just say it, the vote was five-to-one. And the pastor friend of mine who's going through this right now he has been like, this has been the most stressful thing he's ever encountered in the church, where it's like there is a, a split decision and no one wants to budge and everyone thinks God's word is on their side. 
and everyone thinks they're in the right. And he's basically like, okay, then we will just present a split decision to the congregation and say we're going forward with this. And I'm just like, I'm glad I'm not there, you know, and making that decision in that, in that fight, you know. Well, like I said, praise God that we um, were, you know, it's nice to have, and it was, it was, it was nice, like I said, when, we, when, I, when I first started, it was nice to have the other elders that were in other, other pastors in other states and stuff, but it's been so nice having Tom and Frank that uh, I feel like the two best prayers, you know, guys that I could ever wish for, and uh, who are, it says, Proverbs fifteen twenty two says, plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. And we are, like, humbly trying to be a plurality of elders. And the plurality of elders, it says, you know, that's assumed too. Um, it says in Acts 14.23, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. So Paul and Barnabas, when they established churches, they established elders in the churches before they moved on. One of the benefits, too, is that you have extra people praying, and you also have, it enables the elders to get to know the congregation better because an elder, another elder might know somebody better than I know somebody, and so it's beneficial to be able to invest in relationships in the church when it's spread out among different people. Well, there's always danger no matter what if you put a person on a pedestal. I mean, there's always danger of lots of pastors. Remember in the last few years of you think this is a great guy and he's in charge of the ministry and you find out all this shady stuff that there was no accountability. And that's another reason why I've always wondered like, okay, how many, how many elders should you have? And I guess you should always have enough elders that no one's being overlooked. And um, you shouldn't like just limit it, you know, and say we only have three elders. Like... Uh, I've read a lot of um, the Nine Marks Healthy Church series stuff about elders, and that church has a large, large team of elders, like 40 or 50 elders. Um, and then, like you were saying, who's in charge? The pastor doesn't, he doesn't lead the elders. There's an elder chair, and then he even says he doesn't even talk at the elder meetings. Whenever there's a vote, he never votes first. He always starts with the youngest elder and works his way up, and, or the elder chair t- tends to do that. And then they all, the newest elders, I should say. And then, like, he doesn't even weigh in because he doesn't want to influence the other elders. He wants them to make the decision. But he tends to be very quiet, he says, in the elder meetings. Almost shockingly quiet if you just go and sit in on an elder meeting of, of how it operates like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like I said, we've seen that in leaders who have fallen, and sometimes it's from pride, right? It's not just money, it's not just sex, but sometimes it's pride and that, that just takes the person. Yeah, and so you're really doing danger to the person you put on a pedestal, right? They might want it. They might think, oh, we're safe, but you're not, right? You need that. You need that support even if you don't think you need it because you're right. There is a lot of danger um, for the church, for the person, for the kingdom of God of putting a person into that place. So a, a few points of application we need to obey our elders and submit to their leadership. Remember, uh, Hebrews 13.7 says, Remember your leaders who spoke 
the word of God to you. And so that's really the goal of the elders is to, to um, it's tied to the faithful teaching of scripture. Secondly, um, we should make the elders work a joy rather than a burden. You know, we, uh, that's one of the things that talks about um, also in Hebrews 13, 7, uh, 13, 17. You should be praying for your elders, not just for me, but for Frank and Tom as well. You should be praying for your elders and understand that uh, sometimes uh, you, you, the members can make the elders' job difficult. You know what I mean? And it's funny that the author of Hebrews says that. Don't make it difficult. Make it a joy and not a burden to them. And then can, we all need to consider the qualifications of the, you know, the prospective elders and the elders. Oh, I hope John comes. <laughs> Sorry. We haven't seen John in a while. Um, so, you know, that's the, the whole point of elders is uh, when we established elders at this church, it wasn't who I thought would be a good leader. Like I said at the beginning, it wasn't who I, who I thought would be a good board of director or who I thought uh, would be an elder. I wanted the church to recognize who the elders were. And that's another thing um, when I was talking about uh, that Mark Devers church, he said also he, the pastor of that church, Capitol Hill Baptist, he doesn't um, pick his elders either. He lets the elders pick or And I, I said, I want the, the congregation to recognize the elders here at the church. It wasn't who I wanted to pick. I wanted the church to be able to, to identify and uh, affirm those people who are under shepherds of the church. So it's kind of like that tension, you know what I mean? It's like, okay, who does the church recognize the elder? And, and then who are the elders serving? And you're submitting to the elders, and the elders are trying to be the shepherd. You, you see, it's like you mentioned the word family, and I think that's a good analogy too when it comes to decision-making and submission and, and even titles. It's like you're not going to call your mom and dad by their first name, right? Um, but there is there there is a, a submission to your, either your parents, and then there's an obligation and responsibility for the parents. And, it, and we work together as a family, as all part of the family of God, trying to discern from God's word how we need to operate and how it needs to be structured. So another um, a key office of the book of Acts talks about, Acts chapter 6, is the office of, of deacon. And we don't have deacons in our church here. When we established elders a year ago, there was quite a few people who said, okay, now we need to establish deacons. It says in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 6, now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenist or the Greek-speaking people, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man of full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte, proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And so the, the deacons are people who care for the members of the church, and the reason why they were established, you read from Acts chapter 6, is because the number of the disciples, the number of the believers, the number of the church was increasing, and it was taking up a lot of time from the elders, and they wanted the elders to be the primary ministry as prayer and ministry of the word and teaching the word. 
And so they didn't want to neglect the ministry of the ward in order to do the serving, with, it says, uh, to wait on tables. And so they wanted to put people established into the position of taking care of those physical needs of people that was happening there. They wanted to be able to establish somebody who was going to be in charge of, of, first of all, it promotes unity because you're making sure that people aren't being overlooked and separated. So separated based on those who are Hebrew-speaking versus those who were Greek-speaking people. And, and um, people being overlooked, whether intentionally or unintentionally, that weren't uh, being fairly treated in the church. On one of the nine Marks journals, and it talks the whole journals about deacons and all the articles in there about deacons and that sort of thing, on the cover it has a picture of shock absorbers. And I think that's a good image for what, um, what deacons do in the church is absorb shocks. They promote the unity because sometimes the elders don't realize that there are people being overlooked or mistreated or, you know, they don't realize that there was a need not being fulfilled and so they kind of step into that position to uh, eliminate the, what could be is um, something difficult. Uh, division, I was trying to think of. In fact, I think every leader should be a shock absorber to some extent, where if there's um, a concern or something, an, a leader, an elder, but it, and a deacon too, shouldn't be a person who makes the situation worse, but tries to smooth out the situation there. And they are the ones who... Um, who are in charge of, of different ministries. So the question that, that was asked is, because the church that I grew up in was like, there was like an elder board and there was like a deacon board, and they were kind of like the House of Representatives and the Senate, and they would, it was like a, the Congress of the church. You know what I mean? And then you had the president who was like the pastor, and then he had two different houses of Congress. But in... Um, but in reality, it doesn't, it's not supposed to operate that way, right? I think, anyway, that's what I always thought of. I don't know if that's exactly how it operated, and I'll put that caveat out there, is that the elders are like the pastors, the spiritual leaders, and then the deacons did a lot of the other stuff in the church, like handled the physical properties of the church and um, handled like, a lot of the finances and you know that sort of thing. And the bigger a church is, too, the more deacons that, that need to be operating in the church. And so the question that I always wondered was, well, should we establish deacons right away? Should we give, should we give titles to people, make them deacons in the church of, of River City Church? And um, what makes sense to me is, is if there's only one person doing a job, there's no need to make that person in charge of that because they're the only ones doing that. I think whenever you need a deacon for a ministry, it's whenever there is a group of people that are doing that and there needs to be somebody who's in charge of that, if that makes sense. Does that make sense? So, like, we don't need... Um, so, I don't know. In other words, I feel like in this church um, right now, well, first of all, in Acts chapter 6, it says the numbers were growing. And if you have a church that is growing rapidly then there's going to be needs that fall through the cracks. And you could see that there was a need that, um, it's kind of like the way I look at it, the elders, the apostles were trying to like put out fires and fill gaps. And we're trying to, it seemed like they always had stuff that were coming up that was causing them to neglect the prayer ministry of the word. But I think the smaller the church is, the fewer elders and deacons that you need. And the bigger a church is, that's why I said, I don't think you have to have a certain number, but the bigger a church is, then you would need people to do that. Uh, an example that I always, you know, have said before, like, Let's say we do the, um, the food, the meals or whatever. Or we, let's, and at one time, you know, we were doing the clothing ministry. 
Now, if we have, and some people in the church wanted to do a massive clothing ministry, like a more regular clothing ministry or a more regular food ministry, um, and if we were doing that sort of thing and it required a team of people that were regularly doing that, well, then it seems it would be appropriate to put somebody in charge of that ministry that's not one of the elders if it's taking up a lot of time or pastors. And right now, there's just no need. You know what I mean? Now, um, again, I think when, so that might be an instance where the elder team says, hey, we, we need to do this now. You know what I'm saying? Like the elders might say, this is, Eric, this is taking up too much of your time. Or uh, Frank or Tom, like, this is taking up too much of your time. We need to try to um, get somebody in charge of this ministry here. But I don't want to put somebody in charge of a ministry that people don't want to do. That's another problem that I could see happen even in a small church or a big church. Like, there are people that say, hey, we should do this ministry. And, we're, and then like, we're, and what they mean is, is, like, you should do this ministry. You know what I mean? Or they say, we should do this ministry as a church, but then there's, but people don't want to do it. And it, it, what happens is you tend to start a program, and then nobody wants to serve in the program, and then nobody wants to get rid of the program. And then eventually, finally, somebody has the leadership to pull the plug and say, we're not doing this program anymore. And then nobody, some people get upset, and then, and then eventually nobody really misses it because nobody had their heart in it. And I think that's one of the problems of saying, okay, you're a deacon of the clothing ministry. Well, if there's no longer a clothing ministry, there no longer needs to be a deacon of the clothing ministry. Like if they ever got in Acts chapter 6 to not doing a distribution to the widows, they probably didn't got rid of the deacon who was in charge of the ministry to the widows, right? There's no need to have that in place. And in fact, one of the things of COVID, I, I've read a lot of articles and talked to pastors about how they ended all the ministries of the church and then only had like the core ministries that, that they brought back. And one of the benefits that I've seen other bigger churches is saying a little by little, we can see what was really important. You know, what do we want to bring back first? And what, are we, what kind of programs did we have going on that we can just easily say we're not doing this anymore because, and they're using COVID as an excuse. You know, question? Yeah, go ahead. That's a good point. Except that's also, um, uh, I love that Frank teaches the catechism because I it was, um, there are some traditions, I think pres there's some Presbyterian and Reformed Baptist traditions that say like, the, the, um, that's written down that the job, one of the jobs of the elders is to instruct the kids. And, um, and so like, I love that Frank, as the elder, is doing that, like teaching catechism to the kids. Now, a lot of us went through, um, not me, but a lot of us went through a class at, at age 13 in a church. And it was the pastor. Like, I've heard a lot of pa kids that say, or people that say, when I was... 12, 13, I went to a class in Sunday school and it was taught by the pastor to prepare kids to be members, you know, to prepare them to be junior members in some churches they call them or to become members. Um, so that's also a role of the elders too, but I, I, the oversight and, and that, the assistance in, that, assistance in that is really good. There was one time there was somebody that was a member of our church who's no longer a member and they wanted to take on the responsibility of being in charge of physical properties, like in charge of organizing cleaning, and anything else that would come with the church here, that person ended up moving away, but um, I was going to, um, the kids are all looking out the window, so that I'm sure they're done. So I was going to like try to teach this person to become a deacon, and he that's the role he wanted to be, like he wanted to serve in that way. And he's like, I, I'm going to come regularly to every week and make sure that things are in order and that sort of thing. Um, 
I thought that was that was really great, and then he ended up moving away. So um, let's real quickly end here with congregational authority and how that helps the unity of the church. And I've said this before, the importance of church membership. Basically, um, let me see. Why don't we just end right now? We're going to end right now, and then we'll pick it up next week here with the congregation and then balancing elder leadership and congregationalism. And, um, like, who has the final say? I've mentioned this before. Uh, really, I mentioned this before when we're talking about gospel unity and preaching the gospel. You know, a lot of times when they're giving instructions to the church, they say, like, tell it to the church. When there's a discipline issue, tell it to the church. And there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of assumptions that there's a gathered church that's making decisions, and it's not tell it to the elders or tell it to the bishop uh, of Antioch or any, any kind of that sort of thing. But there's a lot of uh, words when he's talking about, in 1 Corinthians, talking about how a church operates. Paul just assumes that like there's a gathered church and they're making decisions. Protecting the, the preaching of the gospel happens, that sort of thing, where um, really what it comes down to is... Uh, we are a collective body. We are a collected group of people. We're a family of God. And uh, we all operate with some of the same authority because we're all members. And um, we operate under the authority that God has put in place, which is the pastor elders. I like it when um, I was listening to an interview, I think it was with Shai Lin, who's a hip-hop artist who actually made music. And then he took a break for a minute and helped to plant a church. He was an elder. And then I heard an interview afterwards when he was going back to just doing music. And they said, so are you, um, are you still a, an elder at this church? And he says, I'm a member in good standing at this, at this church or whatever. And they said, I, you always say that. And he said, well, I, I, that's how I look at it. He's like, that's my role now is I'm a member in good standing. And he would never say, I'm just a member. I just attend. I go to this church. He said, that's how he would say my role went from being a pastor elder to being a member in good standing at this church so that he could devote more time to making music and writing books and that sort of thing. And um, that's how I want everybody to realize the, the value of membership and the value of your role. Because you still have a role even if you're not an elder or you're not a deacon. We're all still part of God's family. Pastor Tom, you want to close us in prayer? Do you have some scripture for us?